This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Many entrepreneurs have been told time and time again that you do have to have a business plan if you want to succeed, much like many of the Fortune 500 companies that are big successes. But a new book says that isn't necessarily the case. In fact, according to Syracuse University professor Carl Schramm, the opposite is in play. You don't need to have a plan, or as the title of his book says, burn the business plan. Carl is also a former president of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and has been a member of the President's National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And it's a pleasure to welcome Carl to the show right now. Carl, thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be with you. Thank you. So get into the guts of this. Why, in your mind, is a business plan not necessary? Well, first of all, uh, it's, it's the basis of much of the teaching about how to start a business. And the reality is I looked at it, and so much of what's taught is basically conjecture. Uh, my book is basically uh, developed off 10 years of research that we did at the Kauffman Foundation. So to go directly to your question, if you look at all of our major corporations, for example, the old corporations, U.S. Steel, General Electric, IBM, American Airlines, etc., and then you come up and look at our newer companies like Amazon, uh, Apple, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, None of these companies ever had a business plan before they got started. So empirically, it appears as if you don't need a business plan. Second, the business planning process is largely generated as a preview for venture capital. Mm -hmm. And as I show in my book from empirical studies, much less than 1% of all new startups ever see a venture capitalist, never meet with a venture capitalist. Much less than 1% of all brand new companies every year uh, have venture backing of any kind from an angel investor or from a formal venture fund. So I largely view the creation of a business plan as something of a waste of time. The third problem is that it seems to uh, make starting a business somewhat like a cookbook. If you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, the cake will come out okay. And that's <laughs> right. really not how it happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it interesting. You mentioned uh, the, the the component of around age, where right now uh, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, end up being in their late 30s or 40s. Uh, and to me, that says that obviously these are people that have had a quote-unquote career to a degree, and they have made a, a shift or they have this great idea, and they want to change their path uh, midway through their careers. Yes, precisely. And again, it goes to this question of what are we doing when we're trying to teach uh, high school kids, uh, which is going on all over the place, even in fact, grammar school children get courses in, in exposure to entrepreneurship. At the university level, it's it's now a major in probably 3,000 colleges and universities. And the whole schema, including the notion of a business plan as the formal way to teach how to start a business in a college classroom, is geared to 20-year-olds. Uh, and, you know, much of, much of our mythology is the unicorn companies are started by people like um, Mark Zuckerberg, who are in their 20s. But the reality is the vast majority of people who start businesses now, which has always been the case, are middle career people who, in fact, have been uh, uh, surprised by the fact that they actually had an idea and their idea was good enough to actually build a business around. So, again, Another thing that's wrong with how we write about uh, entrepreneurship, how it's taught, 
is somehow that people set out to be entrepreneurs as if they set out to be a dentist or an accountant. And the vast majority of entrepreneurs were surprised to find that they had an idea that could turn itself into a business, and they were really amazed to find out that they became an entrepreneur. For example, in my own case, I was a professor at Johns Hopkins for 15 years, and then one day my research, you know, it sort of like slapped me in the face. I said, holy smokes, um, you know, if I want to really make this work and actually change the world, I can't do it by writing an academic paper. Right. I have to start a business. We are joined by Carl Schramm, who is the author of the book, Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we can bring it up uh, through that manner, at bizradio111, B-I-Z radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Going back to the, to the education piece then for, for a second, Carl, how do you think then this mindset of, uh, of how we teach our kids, especially surrounding entrepreneurship, maybe needs to be tweaked, adjusted to be able to better fit some of the ideas that you have in your book? Uh, well, I, you know, I don't think it can be tweaked. I think it should be abandoned. Okay. I think it should be overthrown. Because if you look at, um, you know, again, empirically, if you look at where entrepreneurs come from, if they have actually have training, formal training, it's not an entrepreneurship. It's an engineering or the STEM subjects, the technical subjects. So, for example, if you look, let's say, at MIT, many, 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 many more entrepreneurs come out of MIT because it's an engineering and a technical school. Same thing for Caltech. Caltech doesn't even teach entrepreneurship. At MIT, there's one professor in, in the business program there who teaches entrepreneurship. But it doesn't matter because if they didn't teach it at all, these schools, like most engineering schools, would be producing many, many new businesses all the time. Mm-hmm. You talked uh, a moment ago about the, the, the low amount of, of actual funding coming uh, from people like angel investors right now. But what about funding in general when you're talking about uh, an entrepreneurial idea? Well, again, uh, my empirical studies indicate, uh, and it's it's been confirmed a million times by federal government studies and so forth, uh, most entrepreneurs, uh, and it's one reason people can become entrepreneurs in midlife, uh, they turn to their own savings, their own assets, to friends and families for loans. Um, by the time you're 40, which is the average age at which people start businesses, you've solved your uh, or settled out your student debt. You've got a house. You're likely uh, to have a spouse who has a job, which is a huge protection if you start a new company because she has or he has you know, health insurance and other benefits. Mm-hmm. So most companies are self-funded. You also take the time in, in the book to talk about uh, the incubator, uh, which is seemingly a, uh, a an idea that so many people have across the United States right now. And the fact that the incubator isn't exactly, in your mind, having the desired effect that a, a lot of people are hoping that it would. Yes. Again, empirically, very few companies come out of these incubators. Um, I was trained as a labor economist, and when I look at these incubators, in fact, I'm in the middle of writing an essay right now. What's going to happen to all the incubators? And the premise of my essay is, as we turn towards 3 and 4% GDP and much, much lower rates of unemployment and much higher demand for well-trained people, uh, no one's going to want to spend time in an incubator. They can get a job. And that's a really important part of the drama of becoming an entrepreneur. In the book, I make the case 
that the most effective place to learn how to be entrepreneurial is, in fact, to go into a big company because that's where you see innovation happen. More innovation happens in big companies than, for example, university laboratories. And it's also where you learn all the skills that make a business work, including you're exposed to what scale looks like in a business. And this is critical. And this is experiential knowledge. You know, you can't teach scale in a classroom. It has to be felt. You have to see it. You have to experience it. Uh, part of the book are, are real-world examples that you have given, and one that I wanted to touch on is I, I think it's a, it's an amazing story, uh, surrounds the, the Dyson Vacuum Cleaning Company and, uh-huh. and how they ha- have kind of built up their operation. Yes. Dyson is a fantastic story for your listeners. He's, um, many people may know about his vacuum cleaners. They come from England. He was actually an industrial designer by background, and he came to the view that one day vacuum cleaners had been a technology that hadn't moved very far. Far. He was using a vacuum cleaner and noticed that the more you used it and the dirtier the dustbin got inside, the less power it had. And this became the question that triggered his search. And James Dyson built over a thousand prototypes. He quit his job. Uh, his wife uh, was a teacher, and he, he lived off a much more modest income. His wife did all the money earning in the family. And important to this is when he began to uh, push his product out, no companies in the United States or England wanted any part of it. They resisted it because they were making a lot of money on selling paper bags for conventional, old-fashioned uh, vacuum cleaners. Right. So they resisted it fully. He had to go take it to Japan. It had to be prototyped in Japan. When it became successful in Japan, American and British companies tried to steal this design. He successfully defended against that. And I think the best part of Dyson's story is he never had outside investors. It never went to be a public company. It's a huge company now. And I think the extra part of this story is he's like most entrepreneurs. If your idea clicks and you can make it work and you haven't taken your company public, that is, you still control it, you're going to work there for the rest of your life. In the case of Dyson, and I tell another story like that with Howard Hedo and Bennett Skies, they become places where your own creativity works. Mm-hmm. And you can keep at it. You can keep designing. And it becomes, really, it becomes your life. And that's been, that's been the case with Mr. Dyson as well, correct? Yes, yes. His, his, his company is his creative studio. And it's a really important point, particularly for people who are in education and higher education who might be listening because, you know, so often, at least, you know, and I do this a lot, I see universities and I give commencement speeches and so forth. You know, uh, students in universities are programmed to think that somehow people work in the government or work in nonprofit or NGOs are somehow kind of more creative. They're like uh, the people who take art and art history and design work in college. And they're sort of creative. They're people who write music. You know, they're a different brand and they're, they're really geniuses. And the reality is that 95% of kids graduating from college this year are going to work in companies. They're not, not creative. Look at our huge economy. That all happens because people who are created and gifted in business and the invention of things that help other people and the way to take these things to market, those are very, very creative skills. And in the case of Dyson, I, I think he looks upon his company, and I know other entrepreneurs like this. Uh, in fact, I tell the story of Fred Valerino in my book, who's now 94. He goes to work every day. He sees his company as his creative lab- laboratory. Again, I think I think sometimes these these guys 
see their companies morph into sort of studios for them. Well, and then the benefit that they get from that is, you know, it's multiple fold here, as you mentioned, kind of as a creative studio. But uh, I mean, just the, the ability to, to continue to drive and come up with new ideas, you, you don't really know where that next great idea is coming from. And it could be right in front of your face. Exactly. Again, in my book, I speak about Fred Ballerino. Uh, he's 94 now. And I had lunch with him two weeks ago. And he said, you know, Carl, it's been, I've been in a really creative uh, surge in my life. He said, you know, in the last six months, I've gotten five new patents. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy's like the ever-ready bunny. He's never going to stop. He goes to work every day to see what he can come up with. So how much in the end with, with all of the examples that you give and, and uh, from, from what you just said, passion and determination are probably two of the great qualities that a lot of, a lot of the great entrepreneurs have. Yes, it's true. But so many times uh, uh, students in college are told that, you know, you have to follow your passion, you know, go after your passion, particularly in business. And that's why you should start a company. But a lot of times the passion doesn't make any sense. I mean, I've seen students who are passionate about having an app, a web app for for frying pans. It's actually in the book I sort of make fun of this because as I've judged business playing competitions at the college level, I've seen right now the same idea come up five times. That is, you know, invent a sensor for a frying pan, and it tells you on your telephone when your eggs are cooked, right? Right. And kids are passionate about that, but it's not an idea that's ever going to work. I mean, they're they're making cooking a sim, they're making the sim, simplicity of cooking an egg into a complex technical project, right? So they're passionate about it, but it's not the true passion of somebody. I think passion really clicks. When you've got an idea and it starts to have market feedback, that's the thrill of it, right? When yeah. other people are saying what you came up with is valuable, right? And when they say it's valuable, what they're telling you is you created something out of your head that makes my life easier, and I value it. So I give my money to you for your idea. Uh, is Yeti Coolers one of those as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeti is a fabulous story. You know, and it's one of those things where those guys didn't expect to be entrepreneurs. Right. The idea snuck up on them. Yeah. Okay. They love to go fishing. They fell through regular igloo boxes because they're not all that well made. And somebody, one of them, one of the two brothers said, you know, what we ought to do is make a cooler that's so sturdy you could stand on it. And the Yeti cooler came out of something just that simple. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. Carl Schramm, our guest, he is the author of the book, Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do, 844-942-7866. Or again, if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You've mentioned a couple things, but beyond that, besides that real-world experience, when you're talking about whether it be the kids that, that you were involved with at Syracuse or, or other uh, universities around the country, Bes- besides that lack of real-world experience, what are some of the other things that, that today's 20-somethings are missing in terms of being able to have that, that great idea, that great, uh, that great company? Uh, well, it's the same in any time. They're missing experience. And that's why in my book I say, you know, if you really want to be an entrepreneur and you don't have a really – great idea when you're 21 getting out of school don't fret just wait and what should you do while you wait go learn stuff and the stuff you should learn is easiest learned in big businesses 
because you'll go out there and you'll watch the innovation process work. I consult with several companies, and, you know, what I'm watching all the time is these companies constantly trying to renew themselves with new products, better products. They spend a lot of money on research and development. But anybody who's, who's working in one of these companies, almost any place, can see the constant iterative change that's taking place. So you actually get innovation into your normal daily routine. I think that's one of the greatest things that you can learn. And in the book, I talk about any number of people who are working in companies, and I think in many regards, as regards people who work in big companies, managers in big companies, the book is valuable in the sense that it points to the fact that many, many, many new companies come out of old companies. The entrepreneurs see stuff. And two, two routes are the way this happens. The companies basically decide that they're going to stick to their core competency and they're going to reject a brand new idea. And they often say to people, okay, you love this idea so much, go do it. Go do it with our blessing. You can have the intellectual property. In some cases, like IBM, they actually financed the startups. Right. And that, that was the case in Cerner out in Kansas City, the, the healthcare data company. They were actually financed startups, help their people start a new company. The other thing is, is a much more difficult problem, and that is people who go to management and say, this is the better way to do it, or here's a new application, or here's a new market, and we have all the technology. If we configure it differently, we can own and capture this market. And, you know, um, MBA-type managers often say, no, 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 we're going to stick to our core competency. We don't know how to do that, right? It's not our karma. It's not our destiny. And frustrated employees walk out. And I interview people like yeah. that in the book, and they say again and again, I could have made all this money for my old employer, but they just wouldn't listen to me. Well, and I was going to bring that up anyway, because it seems like there's an unbelievable opportunity for the businesses where these people are work to be able to to really nurture these ideas and be able to find something that maybe, you know, ends up being a great success that they didn't really realize on that. And, and so because of that, the company that's not doing that is losing out tremendously by that, not only on the personal capital of the people that leave the company, but the actual ideas that they're coming up with as well. Uh, Dan, you hit the nail right on the head. I think that's the, the gravamen, the important point of this book for big companies, because it's happening in every single company. You've got creative people in there. They might be running a machine. They might be on the production line. They could be any place in your company. They could be at the loading dock. And they see things, and they could do things differently. You know, uh, one of my favorite examples, it's not in the book, is, you know, one of the great uh, logistic revolutions that permits all of our prices for consumer goods to be much, much lower than it would have been, mm -hmm. was container boxes, the boxes on the back of a trailer that come off the, off the trailer, go right on a ship. That was developed by a truck driver in Newark, New Jersey. In the old days, when, when trailer trucks um, were inflexible, they were fixed, and every time you went into uh, a yard or a dock, a loading dock, people had to go on the truck and take the stuff off and reload it. And he said, yeah. you know, it's a big steel box. Why don't you just take the whole box, the whole back end of the truck, and put it on the ship? This is a truck driver saw that. Yeah. And he gave us the container revolution that made a, a world revolution in logistics. People forget sometimes, and that, that is a phenomenal story. People forget sometimes how that, and obviously not only did it change the, uh, uh, the industry, the shipping industry, but it, from 
moving containers not only just by truck, but the, the the ability to be able to put thousands of these containers on a ship and move them across the ocean as well. Yeah, yeah. Here's another simple story. You know, I've been traveling. I've been traveling by air for forty years. When I was a young professor, first traveling, and this might be your own experience, there was not, no such thing as a roller bag in an airport. Everybody yeah. carried their suitcase, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, a stewardess basically said, hmm, maybe if I put wheels on my suitcase. Well, it's a revolution. But, you know, the big question is people were doing air travel for 50 years before anybody cooked up the idea of putting wheels on a suitcase. You talked about also uh, in the book the fact that there are some very well-known companies, some big-name companies like Microsoft and and Apple, and and you mentioned it earlier with Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, the fact that that these were companies that realistically didn't have a plan at the outset, but obviously now are working through a variety of plans. But just to get their feet up and running, they didn't have necessarily a plan. That's right. They went and they tried it, okay? And... You know, we have this drive in our society, and I think it's in humankind, so I think it's really human nature, that we, we, we sort of don't think that important things happen by chaotic ways, chaotic means. And if you look around, you know, um, there are academics and experts who are struggling constantly to make the process of starting a business somehow logical, planned, orderly. So there are people who who say it should be done with a business camp, uh, you know, canvas. There are people who say it should be done with a compass. Right. These are sort of cookbook approaches, you know. Uh, you know there's a book, obviously, and he, he's a friend of mine, and it's a good book called Lean Startup. But that book is for technical companies, actually, you know, computer software companies, where you can go test your product. And it's the, he, he concludes, Eric Reese concludes the same way, the business plans aren't very important, but his solution is great for companies that do software so you can get you can get your customers to help you design it now everybody ought to be doing that with every product listening to your customers um, at the moment i'm wearing under armor you know clothes mm-hmm. and kevin plank who's a neighbor of mine in baltimore you know was famous for listening to what his customers said with a second ear if you will what are they really saying you know because they might say well you're the owner of the company boy this is good stuff yeah but they were also saying, you know, if it was a little larger here, a little slimmer there, a little tighter here, it breathed more. You know, he was constantly adjusting to hearing what the market was saying. And that's the mark of a really good entrepreneur. You don't have the right answer at the beginning. You never have the right answer. The market changes. Technology changes. Your customers' tastes are changing. Price points change. Your competitors change. The You know, the competitor landscape You've got to be at this all the time. And a lot of times that's a, that's a hidden assumption in all the advice that's given to entrepreneurs. If you crack it once, boy, you go right to the bank, you buy a jet, you're, you're over with. You do a public offering and you're rich and yeah. out by 30. That's not the case at all. You know, you start a business, that's only the beginning. And it's the beginning of trying to make it big because growth is what's important. Scale is the critical issue. And the only way you can get there is constantly reacting to the market and all the signals it's sending as to what it needs. Carl, great book. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The book is Burn the Business Plan, Uh, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Carl Schramm uh, is the author of the book. The book uh, is available in bookstores and online uh, for your purchase. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 